Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to our ongoing national conversation series about customer service in the U.S. I'm Denise Waiters with J.D. Power, and with me today is John Pico. John is the founder of Watermark Consulting and a leading expert in both the customer and employee experience. John helps companies impress their customers. He's been featured by dozens of media outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, NBC News, Fortune, and Forbes. He has also advised C-suite leaders at some of the world's foremost brands and helped them to capitalize on the power of loyalty, both in the marketplace and in the workplace. Thank you for joining me today, John. Hey, Denise, it's great to be with you. All right. Well, John, you may know that J.D. Power recently launched our first ever cross-industry customer service experience study, where we obtained voice of the customer feedback for approximately 100 brands and across multiple industries. And our quest at the time was to find out what customer expectations are for a great service experience. We also wanted to know how those expectations are being set and what top performers are doing to achieve excellence within their industry and across industries. And we believe that our study offers an excellent way for brands to assess the competitive landscape. So we'll talk a little bit more about the study later in the podcast. But to get us started, John, why don't you tell us about yourself and what made you launch a customer experience consultancy? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, the story begins uh, many years ago with the first entree I had into into the business world, uh, which was actually selling radio ads door to door when I was in college, uh, because I wanted to uh, get a DJ slot on the college radio station, which was actually a commercial radio station. It didn't get any uh, funds from the university. Um, And the folks at the radio station were like, well, you know, sure, but if you want anything other than the graveyard shift, you need to bring money into the station. And so I sort of went hat in hand, uh, you know, to uh, store after store selling radio ads. And the reason I, I start there is because that's really where I began to see how even very small aspects of the interaction that you have with a sales prospect or a customer can have a very material influence on their likelihood to start doing business with you or to continue doing business with you. And that's kind of where I got the the bug, if you will, uh, to to work within the business world and specifically uh, within customer experience. Um, and, uh, you know, fast forward uh, to my corporate career where I had the unique opportunity to work uh, leading a lot of different functional areas. Um, from sales to marketing to operations, service, distribution, even IT. Uh, and that gave me a um, what I thought was a really unique background because where many companies go wrong is they, they don't really realize that their functional silos are kind of working at cross purposes and not really coalescing around a common vision for the customer experience. And I had a chance to walk in the shoes of each of those functional leaders and kind of see the customer experience uh, from that perspective. Um, and so ultimately I decided, you know, um, I always toyed with the idea of setting up my own consultancy. And uh, I thought that was a really unique background to bring to bear uh, to the marketplace and help other firms uh, overcome those hurdles in improving their customer experience and their customer service. Well, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I, a lot of us start 
in, in that same way from little small experiences in our own lives just to get started in customer service. So I, I have a, a very similar story, but we're going to talk about you today. <laughs> well, I'll have to interview you then in the future. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, John, you you just wrote, you wrote a book called From Impressed to Obsessed. So there are lots of business books on, on the market today. So what what compelled you to write that book? What did you think we needed to hear and understand about the customer experience from your book? First, I'd say the motivation for me to, to put pen to paper really came out of sort of my longstanding frustration uh, with companies uh, and all of the incivilities that they subject their customers and their employees to. Um, you know, in the customer space, we're subjected to long waits, hidden fees, poor responsiveness, unhelpful staff, if you can even find them, uh, incomprehensible communications. And then in the employee arena, uh, you know, when I view employees as a type of customer, uh, you've got mercurial bosses who don't give any career development, uh, who aren't responsive, aren't tolerant of alternative views. And, you know, I just look at at organizations and and I see how they treat these key stakeholders, and that just always bothered me. And that's one of the reasons, again, why I got into the business that I'm in. But I saw an opportunity to really uh, disseminate my views uh, more widely by writing a book. And and the reason I really wanted to write the book is because when you look at all of these incivilities that companies subject their stakeholders to. What, what really dawned on me is there are so many small, straightforward things that organizations and their leaders could do to more favorably shape both the reality of the customer and employee experience, as well as people's perceptions and memories of it. And that's really the part that I emphasize in the book. And this is the part that I think really doesn't get a lot of attention uh, in, in, um, uh, in this discipline is the notion that how people remember their experience with a company or with a leader is even more important than the experience itself. You know, focusing on the customer realm, uh, what, what, what I think great companies realize is that they're not just in the business of shaping people's experiences, they're in the business of shaping their memories because it's people's memories that are going to drive that repurchase and referral behavior uh, that's the lifeblood of any thriving business. Um, and you know what I found is that there are a discrete set of principles grounded in cognitive science that successful companies use to shape their customers' perceptions and to sculpt their memories and to motivate precisely the kind of behavior uh, that drives uh, business success in the future. Okay. Well, you know, I know you talked about principles and one of your 12 principles is about making things effortless for the customer. And that aligns really well with the results from our cross-industry customer service experience study. And the study highlights the need for brands to minimize customer effort, which, it, which was, in my opinion, the most significant finding from the study. So the more minimal the effort required to resolve an issue or solve a problem, the higher the satisfaction across all channels. So what do you think, what are some of the ways that brands can minimize effort and make it easy for customers to do business with them? 
Yes. And so first, I would just, you know, echo your sentiment. I think that there have been a lot of studies, uh, including obviously yours, that have shown just how valuable an effortless experience can be in cementing loyalty uh, with existing customers and converting sales prospects. Um, what I would tell your audience is that for me, there are two types of effort that I talk about in the book. And I think that that, that uh, I want to start there because I think that uh, every company really wants to keep their eyes peeled on managing both of these types. The first type is physical effort. Uh, and by that, I sort of re I'm referring to, you know, how often do I have to use my vocal cords or, you know, click a mouse button or use my muscles, you know, to interact with your business in some way. That's physical effort. And then there's cognitive effort, which really refers to how easy or difficult it is for me to wrap my head around some idea or concept that you're trying to communicate to me. Um, and so to give you a few examples here, let's start with physical effort. Um, I think that uh, I like to point to Amazon as an example of a company that's really put the whole idea of a physically effortless experience at the center of its whole business strategy, uh, you know, perhaps best uh, epitomized by their patented one-click purchase button, um, which was originally developed to combat cart abandonment uh, because there was a lot of effort early on in the internet era. You know, I'd go to buy something, I'd have to rekey all of my information, my address, my credit card info. And that's what Amazon was what was seeking to do was to minimize effort by retaining all of that information. So one click and I'm done. I think that's a really good example in the digital realm of you know just reducing clicks and and making it more effortless. Um, but the other the other uh, ways that I would suggest that listeners could reduce physical effort is by looking upstream uh, in your customer experience to figure out ways to make it more effortless downstream. Um, and what I, what I really mean by this is the goal for organizations shouldn't be to improve their customer service. It should be to, re, to eliminate the need for customer service entirely. And, and I say that in sort of a cavalier fashion. You'll probably never, of course, get rid of customer service. But the point is that there are so many reasons why people, customers have to invest effort in engaging with a company when they really have no desire to do so. Um, I'm not talking about sales inquiries, but you know, post-sale service inquiries. You think about all the inquiries companies get where it's a repeat inquiry. I have to follow up with you because your people weren't responsive to me or they didn't honor some commitment that they made to me. That increases effort uh, for the customer. And if you're just good at doing what you said you'll do and being responsive, you can take those repeat inquiries off the table. Um, another way to reduce effort is to think about how can I preempt dumb, avoidable reasons why customers contact me? Uh, and, you know, uh, a good example of this that I talk about in the book was with um, the travel reservations company Expedia, where they found that a lot of people were contacting them before their trip just to get a copy of their travel itinerary. Um, and the reason they had to do that was because there was no facility on their website to order a copy of your travel itinerary. That's an example of a dumb inquiry that should never happen. People should be able to request that on their own, get a copy of it without having to speak to, to someone live. So those are examples to me of how you reduce physical effort is it's not just about making, say, point of sale effortless. It's really thinking about how do I eliminate the need for people to contact me downstream at all? And then just quickly, you know, on the cognitive effort piece, 
in terms of just reducing the mental exertion that people have, have to expend to, to work with your company. Some examples there of techniques that are effective are breaking decisions into parts because decision complexity can create, create cognitive effort for customers and lead them to run for the hills and not want to do business with you. Avoiding jargon and using plain language is another way to reduce cognitive effort. Even just making sure that everything you put in front of a customer is visually appealing, uh, you know, meaning that there's white space, there's clear borders and bold headings that help you navigate a document. These are all ways to help reduce cognitive effort. Um, and, uh, and that's imperative because the way our brains are wired, if we encounter a high cognitive load, we just sort of get paralyzed and we tune out and uh, we disengage. And that's, of course, the last outcome that you want to elicit when you're trying to convert a sales prospect or to retain an existing customer. You know, that, that's so true. I got to tell you, one of the biggest surprises that we found from our study, actually, it wasn't a surprise. It was maybe I was astounded, um, is that 40% of all customers who use the phone channel and call a brand feel that they have to repeat themselves. Mm -hmm. I just think that number is preposterous. I mean, it is so ridiculous that you have to repeat yourselves over and over because brands invest so much money in technology and these CRM systems and these IR, IVR systems. So why do we have to repeat ourselves? It's like, you're not listening to me. Why, why don't you hear me? Exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the, the, the worst travesty is when they actually ask you on the phone to key in information, like your account number or something, right? And then when you get to the rep, what do they ask you for? Your account the number. Thing. The same uh, thing. <laughs> and, and, and you're right. It's, it's tragic. And yeah. I don't think that companies understand that it goes beyond mere inconvenience. As you note, it's almost sending a signal to people that mm -hmm. we're not listening to you. You're not listening like, to me. <laughs> we're, you know, we, we, might, we might be talking the talk, but we're not walking the talk. Um, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, that's going to have an impact on the customer relationship. And eventually you're going to see that in your financials. I agree with you. I had a call a couple of days ago um, with my health insurance company, and I had to repeat myself because I had to be transferred four times. And each time I said, you know, I've repeated this. I've already given my name and my account number and my social number and all of this. You know, this is my fourth time. And so I'm, I'm hoping that they're listening <laughs> to the call so that they can fix these things. It's it's, yeah. It's and, really you know, ridiculous. Denise, this is a very good point, that example. And I love talking about healthcare companies, because gosh, I mean, the bar is so set so low uh, with health insurers. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, this is a good example of what I mean about the simple, straightforward things that companies can do to uh, significantly elevate the quality of the experience. In the encounter that you just described, the no notion of I have to be transferred to another area, and then I have to retell my story over and over again. I've worked with companies where they, they, they do it differently. And instead of the transfer, what do they do? Well, the rep that you're speaking to says, Denise, I, I, I can't answer that question for you, but I know who can. Let me get that colleague on the line. We'll do a quick three-way teleconference. I will explain what you're looking for so you don't need to repeat yourself. And then once I know that you are in the hands of, of a capable individual who's got the answer to your question... I will leave you to speak with them. That feels very different to the customer. Not only does it is it more effortless, but it feels like um, 
you know, it's really a signal of advocacy. Like you mm-hmm. care about me, you know, you're, you're taking the time, you're giving your time, the rep is when they don't necessarily have to, to make it easier for me to interact with the business. And to me, that's a great example of a small, subtle thing that companies could do that really change the whole ambiance of the encounter. Mm-hmm. It's a warm transfer. And I ask yeah. for it all the time. Can you do a warm transfer right. so that I don't have, I actually have to help agents help me. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not getting paid to do that, are you? No, I'm not, but I'm just a customer <laughs> service practitioner and that's just, it's just my, my second nature. <laughs> so, so John, so some touch points like paying a hotel bill or updating account information would appear to be unlikely candidates for impressing people. So what are your thoughts on how to turn basic customer touch points into an elevated brand experience? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is it's uh, you never want to disregard any touch point and view it as being beyond the reach of improvement. You know, there are fundamentally some touch points where it's just easy for a company to say, this is just ugly and there's no way that we can improve it. Uh, you know, if you ever get to that point, step back for a moment, you know, uh, reflect on it and, and really think creatively about what you could do differently. Uh, as an example, um, you know, the notion of paying a hotel bill, paying a hotel bill is, you know, not the best experience because you, you, it, it used to be that you have to go down to the front desk. You're probably standing in a line and, you know, you've got to get your credit card out and you see the big bill and you pay it. I mean, how do you make that a better experience? But if you think about it, it actually has been improved uh, in in recent years with the advent of self-service checkout. Um, and so from a mobile app, I can see a copy of my bill. I can check out if everything looks OK and I can be on my way. And that, again, is another example of a way to make an interaction more effortless And for people who choose to avail themselves of that avenue for checking out and are okay with doing it that way and don't want to speak to someone, uh, that's a a great improvement. Um, And so that to me is an example of thinking creatively about something that, you know, on its face would seem to just be an ugly part of the experience when you've got to pay for the service that you got. Um, And the industry has figured out a way to, to make it better. Uh, I think that the other piece, though, is that in the situations where you actually do have an interaction where there isn't a practical way to make it better, then what you want to start thinking about is, is there a new interaction that you can insert into the experience that you have more control over that will help elevate people's perceptions of the encounter. And uh, in the book, the example that I use to describe this is um, going to a doctor's office. And when you, after you visit with the doctor and you go to the, the front desk and you check out, you know, that's where you've got to pay your copay uh, or your deductible or whatever. And so you're reaching in your pocket, you're paying, you know, you look at that and you say, how could that be made a, a better experience? And maybe it can't. But what if that doctor's office decides to introduce an additional touch point into that experience? What if 24 to 48 hours after you leave that office and you've checked out, what if the doctor or the nurse calls you to say, hey, you were in a day ago, just wanted to check in on you and see how you're feeling. 
you know, has that medication that we've given you? Is it helping you? Um, that's not something that every doctor's office does. But the way that we remember our experiences, that actually is a very effective strategy for tacking an additional interaction onto that point of checkout that's going to help people's perceptions of the whole experience end on a higher note. And so that's the other strategy I would say is if you actually can't figure out how to improve a specific interaction, start thinking about how you could add some new interaction to the experience that you do have more control over to help elevate the quality. That's actually a great example. I do. We have this um, urgent care. I, you know, I have four children, John, so I'm always mm-hmm. at a doctor or urgent care or something <laughs> like that. Uh-huh. And one of the brands that we work with, they always call and follow up to find out how, you know, the, the prescription work or how the kids are doing. And I, I just love that. So I think that was a great experience. Yeah. I haven't thought yeah. about it in the way that you just expressed. I just right. know that. And again, it's another example. How much does that cost them, right? How much right. does it cost them to do that? But it obviously has a significant impact on your perception and your memory of working uh, with that urgent care provider. That's right. That's right. So John, let's talk about the business case for customer experience. And many uh, customer experience transformations are expensive. So what insight can you provide on on that, creating a business case for elevating the experience. Yeah. So the first thing I would say is I, I think that somebody who's trying to argue the business case for customer experience, I'd be careful using the word transformation. Uh, and the reason I say that is because that can be um, it can be a little third rail. I think in some organizations, you know, executives can hear the word transformation and immediately they see the dollar signs pop up, and you know they start to tune out because they're just reining in the purse strings and they just don't. They just think it's going to be way too expensive. And getting back to some of the examples that we just talked about, there are material advances that you could make in elevating the experience that you're delivering to your customers that. You know, people would look at and say, well, that's not necessarily transformation, but boy, it's a continual, it's a continuous incremental improvement that moves the needle, that makes a difference. And so that's one thing I one piece of advice I would give is you want to be sensitive, given the culture of your organization, whether the word transformation is actually helpful or not. Now, getting to the brass tacks of actually, you know, the uh, the the uh, the business case for it. I think like with many things in business, uh, you know, this is not about how much something costs. It's about how much it makes. It's about the value that you get in return. And so the question that organizations need to ask themselves, as opposed to focusing on how much this customer experience improvement is going to cost us, what you also want to be talking about is things like, what does a 1% improvement in customer retention mean to us? If we're able to elicit that from the from the enhancements that we're making, what would that be worth to us? What would a 1% greater sales conversion rate be worth to us? If our referral rate from existing customers increased by 1%, what would we gain? If we reduced our post-sale customer inquiries by just 1%, what would that be worth to us? These are the kinds of things that companies should be reflecting on because If you're going to invest in customer experience improvements, these are the ways that you're going to see the benefits. And when you start to look at the numbers, at what a 1% improvement, for example, in customer retention is actually worth to your company, very often I find that 
what it's going to cost to get there with the experiential improvements, it sort of pales in comparison to the, the value that you get from a hundred basis point improvement in customer retention. Um, so that's, that's another important way, I think, to look at it. And then the last piece of advice that I would have around making the business case is that it's important for, for people to understand that the benefits of customer experience investments often appear in different cost centers from where they are made. And this is something that is really problematic for organizations because, you know, we talked earlier about the siloed nature of many organizations. So if I choose to invest in making our billing statement more readable with the hopes of reducing some of those downstream billing calls that many companies get, if I'm going to invest in that, that's going to appear, say, in the billing administration cost center. But the benefits of that improvement are not going to appear in the same cost center. They're more likely going to show up in the contact center's expense report via reduced calls and maybe less need for smaller staff. And so the economic calculus of customer experience improvements often cuts across cost centers and functional areas. And so when you're trying to justify and, and make the case for customer experience, you've got to make sure that the CFO and others that are looking at the financials are thinking holistically about all of the places, not only where the investment is being made, but where the return is going to be seen. And you need to make sure to match those up in order to really see the value that you're getting. And I think that's why many of these, these initiatives are now being run by chief experience officers as opposed to individual departments, because you're right, people begin to think selfishly about how is this going to impact my budget? And if it doesn't, maybe they don't do anything about it. Like that example with the, the head of billing. You know, if, if I'm not going to see a benefit necessarily from an expense standpoint to my cost center, how much do I really want to invest uh, in improving yeah. the bill? So I, right. I think you're right. There is value in having somebody in the organization who has a perch that uh, enables them to look broadly across all of those functional silos. So, John, how do you calculate the ROI of customer experience and how would you convince skeptics within any organization that there's real value in delivering a great and differentiated customer experience? Uh, so I think that you have to look at this from two perspectives. There's a macro view and there's a micro view. Um, and by the macro view, I sort of mean the macroeconomic view of uh, at a high level, what is the, the ROI on uh, customer experience excellence? Uh, and this was something that I uh, wrestled with for a long time in my career. And when I set up my own customer experience consultancy, it sort of became a greater necessity to me because if I was going to have any clients, I needed to make sure that they understood what was the ROI of investing in customer experience. And uh, I, I remember it was, uh, it was, probably within the first year that I started my business, it was around actually the holiday time in December and this light bulb went off. And I said to myself, you know, how do you convince people of the ROI of customer experience, executives and boards of directors? And the answer is you need to speak a language that they understand. And what I put my finger on is that the language that those folks really understand is the language of shareholder value. You know, whether you're a public or a private entity, every business leader gets the idea of shareholder value. And ultimately every for-profit business is trying to increase uh, its shareholder value, no matter who those shareholders are. And so 
I said to myself, hey, wouldn't it be interesting to take a look at the stock market performance of the top publicly traded companies in customer experience, uh, the CX leaders versus the worst in customer experience, the CX laggards. Um, and that was actually the genesis of what is now known as the Watermark Consulting Customer Experience ROI study. Uh, and we updated every few years. Uh, and the most recent study, which came out uh, a couple of years ago and is referenced in my book, um, it, it has 13 years of data in it. And if you take a look at the top 10 companies in customer experience versus the bottom 10, uh, and this is from third-party research studies based on consumer interviews, uh, the customer experience leading firms outperform the laggards by an over three to one ratio in shareholder return. Uh, and you know that's not one year of performance or three or five. This is over a decade that this pattern, this pecking order of performance has persisted. And to me, that is really the exclamation point on the case for customer experience. Also, very relevant, I think, Denise, to you and, and your listeners uh, that follow J.D. Power, we've also done industry-specific ROI studies using J.D. Power customer satisfaction uh, studies. So um, we've done it for well, the wealth management industry, for the airline industry, for property and casualty insurance. Uh, and um, in each case, uh, the same result. You see that the leaders in customer experience in those industries over the long term, uh, their shareholder return uh, far outpaces that of the laggard. So that's the macro view. And then in terms of the micro view at a company specific level, what I encourage organizations to do is to actually look at the lifetime value of customers that love you versus those that hate you. And, you know, how do you determine who loves you and who, who hates you? Uh, certainly, if you have some sort of voice of customer program, if you're doing surveys of any kind, uh, th there are ways to then put these customers into two groups. The step that many organizations don't take, though, is uh, to then look at the financials of each of those customer groups, the ones that have rated you highly versus those that have rated you poorly. And anytime I see a company do this, what they discover is that the customers that love them, they have a greater tendency to repurchase, greater tendency to buy other products. You get greater wallet share from them. They also tend to contact you less because they're happier. They don't complain as much. And when you add it all together, you see that the lifetime value of the customers that love you uh, is far greater than those that hate you. And looking at that differential is a great way to really quantify how much more you should be spending on customer experience, you know, per customer to sort of get them to that point where they are a raving fan uh, and you're realizing all the benefits of that improved relationship. I love that next step, John. That's great. I hadn't thought about um, dividing up feedback in that way and testing it financially. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So John, what about those brands that might want to deliver a better experience but have constrained budgets? What can they do with their with their limited resources? Uh, you know, my advice to to organizations that are in that position is you really want to focus. It goes back to what we talked about a little earlier. You want to focus on those types of uh, experience enhancements that actually help to preempt downstream customer inquiries. Um, because when you look upstream and you make changes upstream in the experience, whether that's, uh, you know, the point of sale interaction or how a sales proposal is constructed or how a billing statement is, is organized, when you make investments there, 
it's a lot easier to justify and to quantify the impact of those investments because they're not driving increased sales necessarily, which are notoriously hard to quantify. What they are driving is expense savings in the form of uh, reduced inquiries downstream that's putting less stress on your operating infrastructure, which essentially means that you are able to deliver a better customer experience at a lower cost. And so that's where I would tell organizations that are uh, budget constrained, um, you should look for those opportunities that are essentially self-funding if you look at them over the long term in the sense that if you're doing it right, you're actually going to take a certain percentage of post-sale inquiries out of the organization, and, and that is unquestionably going to have a, a payback for you. Okay. Well, John, you are a wealth of information. So where can folks go to follow you and learn more about your work and, and purchase your book and, and so on? Yeah, sure. So uh, if they're interested in learning more about the book, the uh, book's official website is at uh, www.impressedtoobsessed.com. That's impressed, the number two, obsessed.com. Uh, and they can learn from the book about the book there uh, or uh, or buy it from their favorite retailer. And then to learn more about me and uh, and my company, best place to go is to my personal website, which is johnpico.com. That's J-O-N. P-I-C-O-U-L-T dot com. And from there, people can uh, uh, learn more about uh, my organization, Watermark Consulting, as well as the book uh, and my uh, keynote speaking services. Okay. Well, that's going to wrap it up for us today. Thank you so much, John, for participating in today's podcast. I appreciate you sharing your wisdom and your insight and excerpts from your book. Uh, Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Denise. It was great to be here. All right. And so listeners, thank you for tuning in as well. If you'd like more information on today's topic, please visit us on our website at jdpower.com forward slash business. Till next time.